Good morning and welcome, friends. And if you're guests with us this morning, we're really glad to have you and glad that you are with us. Last week, we started a new sermon series called By Faith. And in this series, we are looking at a particular phrase each week. The righteous shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. That phrase shows up four different times in the Bible in four different books to address four different situations in which the people of God find themselves. And in each situation, the people of God are struggling with his promises. They're struggling with what they see in the world around them. And they're struggling with who and what they are in Christ. And yet the message remains the same. The righteous shall live by faith. Faith is a struggle, and the struggle is real. This series is for believers and unbelievers. It's for the devoted and the doubters, for skeptics and strugglers, cynics and explorers. If that's you, then welcome to Rockwell Press. We're glad you're here because you are in good company. There's a place for you with your doubts and your concerns and your questions. Why? Because there's a place for you in the heart of God. God does not fear your doubts. God does not fear your struggles or your skepticism. When your faith feels small and weak, he doesn't look at you and think, my goodness, how pathetic you are. When your faith feels small and weak, he doesn't pull away from you because your struggles make you unworthy of his attention. It's quite the opposite. You find yourself in that position with all of those struggles, not because God is distant, but because God has actually drawn near. He's come close, and he is actually at work within you. It doesn't always feel that way, does it? My goal this morning is that you would feel okay embracing those doubts and struggles of faith. I... I don't want them to be something you fear, but something you learn to treat as precious because that struggle leads to something beautiful, something profound, and something life-changing in your life. The Bible tells us that it's in the powerlessness of doubt that we understand and experience the power of God. Because to you and your doubts and your struggles, the message remains the same. The righteous shall live by faith. Last week we saw that the first time that phrase shows up in the Bible, it's spoken to a struggling prophet named Habakkuk. He's frustrated. He's wrestling with God because of everything he sees around him. And he's wondering, where are you, God? Where are your promises? Are you there? Will you not intervene? He's struggling because whenever he looks at everything around him, he sees two things. He sees his nation, his people, living in rebellion, leaving behind what God says is right and true and good, completely uninterested in life on God's terms. But he also sees his enemies. He sees the Babylonians surrounding them, and they are powerless to do anything about it. And in that, he cries out to God, God, why do you stand idly by? Why are you so content to do nothing? Don't you care? 
And God responds to Habakkuk in extraordinary fashion. He says, Habakkuk, I am doing something. Something so marvelous that you actually wouldn't believe me even if I told you. But know this, the righteous shall live by faith. So what's he saying to Habakkuk when he says that? He's saying, Habakkuk, when you look around at everything that you see, know this to be true, that your life, your existence, is not based on your standing with anyone or anything around you. Your life is based on your standing with me. Put your trust in me. The righteous shall live by faith. And Paul uses the same phrase in our passage today in Romans, but now the stakes are bigger because it's not just a, a nation that's in rebellion, it's the entire world. And it's not just some earthly empire, but the world is surrounded by the enemy of Satan, sin, and death. And he brings the same questions to bear. Where is God in all of this? What has God done? And that thing that God told Habakkuk, that Habakkuk wouldn't believe even if he told him, Paul wants you to know exactly what that thing is. And even though the stakes are bigger, the message remains the same. The righteous shall live by faith. So to understand what Paul wants us to see, we need to unpack that phrase a little. Because it includes a word that we need to understand. And it's a word that's often misunderstood. It's the word righteousness. And hearing that might make you want to check out this morning because you think that righteousness is a word that theologians use. And it's a word that doesn't really have much practical value for how you live day-to-day -day life. But I would bet this, that even though you may not be aware of it, I bet that you actually have a great understanding of what righteousness means already. Because the concept behind it is, in fact, day-to-day -day reality. It is very real to us. And it actually shows up in virtually every arena of life in some form or fashion. So what is righteousness? How would you define it? What do you think of? Maybe you think of concepts like morality and perfection and right actions and doing the right thing. And those things are a part of it. But they don't get to the heart of what righteousness means. Because righteousness is actually a relational term. In its most basic definition, righteousness is the quality of one standing in relationship to another. So if something is righteous, then it has a right standing in the eyes of another. It is approved and accepted. So, a simple illustration. The reason you're not in jail right now is because you have a righteous standing before the laws of our government. At least I think so. <laughs> it is tax season. But the reason you're not in jail is because you have right standing in the eyes of the laws of our land. You haven't done anything wrong. You're not in jail. You're approved and accepted. And what comes with that? What's the freedom to live, to enjoy life, to have a job, to take a vacation, to eat as much brisket as you want? You can enjoy life because you are free. Now, righteousness also goes much, much deeper than that simple illustration. 
There's actually an example I like to use to show how our pursuit of righteousness is very much a day-to-day reality, and it operates at a very subconscious level in our lives, and yet it is highly present and always there. So the most popular entertainer for children's birthday parties in the Washington, D.C. metro area goes by the name The Great Zucchini. And The Great Zucchini charges $600 an hour, is booked six months in advance, paid up front, and is wildly popular. And there was a reporter that did a story on The Great Zucchini and this phenomenon that he has come to represent. And that reporter had a friend that had already hired the great Zucchini for three separate birthday parties, unloading a small fortune to have the great Zucchini at their children's parties. And now they were hiring the great Zucchini for their fourth birthday party. And so the reporter interviewed their friend for their story, and they asked the question, help me understand, why do you spend so much money on this guy? This is what the friend said. This whole thing has snowballed into levels of craziness, and it's just embarrassing to be a part of it. I know it's an insane, indulgent thing to do. You could just have a party where all the kids played was pin the tail on the donkey or musical chairs or something. But that's just not done in this part of D.C. If you did that, you'd be talked about. Did you hear that? That's just not done in this part of D.C. If you did that, then you'd be talked about. So, who's the party really for? It's not the kid. It's for the parent. Why? It's because they want righteousness. They want righteousness according to their peers. They want acceptance and approval in the eyes of their community. And that comes by the fact that they know they have to throw the right kind of party. And if they do, they will be accepted and have right under and right standing in the eyes of their peers. But if they don't do what's expected, then they face rejection. They get canceled. Righteousness is a reality all around us. Righteousness is deeper than just actions. It speaks to that part of us that searches for approval and wants to feel accepted, the part of us that wants to feel like we are okay in the sight of others. Righteousness pokes at that part of you that feels insecure, always wondering if you are enough, if you've done enough, if you look good enough, if you've done the right thing. Why? Because righteousness isn't something that you can declare for yourself. Righteousness comes from the outside and is spoken over you. It's why we don't like self-righteousness. We don't like when someone declares themselves in the right. Righteousness comes from the outside and it's something that's declared over you. And all throughout your life, in all sorts of ways, you are asked to measure up. To live according to the righteousness of the world around you. And you are told... This is what you have to do to be okay, to feel okay in the sight of others. This is how you will be accepted and approved of. So what's righteousness according to your job? What's required of you in order to be accepted and gain approval? 
Maybe it's meeting the borderline unethical expectations of a demanding boss. Maybe it's the unspoken expectation that everything else comes second to the family or to the, to the company. Business first, family second. There's no such thing as work-life balance. Righteousness, according to the company, is overtime and overworked. Or maybe it's participating and being expected to participate in the gossip of colleagues and sharing their contempt for another coworker. Maybe it's engaging in levels of excess because that's just how we do business. Whatever it may be, you know that if you don't do those things, then what? Well, maybe you're not a part of the team. Maybe you're not on board. Maybe you're not a good fit here. You are unrighteous. What's righteousness according to your family? What's required in order to have right standing with your family? Maybe it's knowing you have to walk on eggshells around a certain family member. Everyone in the family revolves around making that one person happy. Why? Because this is how we make sure everything goes okay. This is how we keep the peace. Because everybody's miserable if that person is not happy. So as long as you play by the rules, as long as you maintain the status quo, then you'll have right standing. But if you don't, then everyone gets upset at you, and you are viewed as the problem. Maybe you get the silent treatment. Grudges abound. It's not about real relationship. It's just a negotiation with the expectation of righteousness. Or maybe it's chasing the approval of a parent that you can never seem to satisfy. They're critical in your success. They're crushing in your mistakes. And you chase that approval that will never come all your life. Or maybe you feel the questions of righteousness after conversations with friends. Always second-guessing and analyzing if what you said was taken the wrong way or you feel claustrophobic or that gnawing in your gut at just the slight possibility that somebody might be upset with you. Or maybe it's meeting the expectation that in order to be a friend with someone, all the attention has to be on them. Righteousness is a reality for us all. It's fundamental to what it means to be human because at the core of our humanity is the desire to be approved of and accepted, to have a right standing with the world around us. It's okay to admit that. Why? Because that's what we were created for. Everywhere in your life and the things that matter most, righteousness is a reality. You're surrounded by all sorts of expectations and requirements and do's and don'ts for how you can gain approval, be accepted, and have right standing with the world around you. And all of those things communicate to you. If you want to know peace and feel okay on the inside, then this is how it looks, and this is what's required on the outside. This is how you will be righteous. And so where are you prone to look for righteousness? Maybe it is the approval of your boss. Maybe it is your coworkers. Maybe it's in your performance and your ability to solve the problems of others. Maybe it's in your lifestyle or always avoiding conflict or having the right friends. What is it that you look to to make you feel okay and approved of? 
But what Paul says in Romans and throughout the New Testament, he says that wherever it is you look for righteousness, whatever it is that you look to to make you feel okay, you will not find life there. You will not find what you're looking for. It's a dead end. You're trying to fill an ocean with a garden hose. And it will never work. And he gives two reasons. He says the first is because it, all of that, all of the means by which you can pursue righteousness on those terms is what? All of it depends on your ability. If you seek approval and acceptance through those avenues, all of that is based on your ability to accomplish it. To always say the right things, to stay in your lane, to meet expectations, to always fit in, to work hard enough, produce enough, to always keep people happy. You name it, that list goes on forever. But whatever it is, no matter how much you give it, it will never give you the peace you desire. Because your desire for righteousness far exceeds your ability to obtain it. And secondly, he says that even though those things may provide a sense of acceptance and validation for a while, in the end, they will leave you. If it's your job, you can't work forever. If it's personal achievement, you can't operate like you're 25 years old your entire life. If it's your intellect, at some point your mind's going to go. If it's pleasing others, you're going to eventually fall short and fail. And Paul would have us think this all the way through. Because he says that whatever form of righteousness you look to, it better be able to deal with death. Because in death, there's no one left to please. In death, there's no one left to give you their approval. In death, it takes away your ability to perform and accomplish anything for yourself. The Bible constantly reminds us that death leaves us with no one and nothing. You need a righteousness that remains even in death. Because death passes the verdict over us all that we are condemned. And so the question is quite simple. If we can't even maintain righteousness with the world around us, then how could we possibly have righteousness before God? If we can't have peace with the world around us, how can we have peace with a holy God? And through Paul, God is telling you the same message that Habakkuk needed to hear. That your life, your existence, is not based on your standing with anything or anyone around you. Your life is based on your standing before God alone. And by faith, you have access to a righteousness that you could never earn. By faith, you have access to a righteousness that you could never lose. By faith, you have access to a righteousness that will never leave you. Here we are approaching Easter in two weeks, and that is exactly what the resurrection of Christ tells you. That Christ came into this world for you, not just to simply offer forgiveness, but to give you a whole new existence, to give you a righteousness that is certain and concrete, even in death. Because in the resurrection, what the world rejected at the cross, God declares and approves and affirms of. What the world rejected, the Father declared righteous, and he vindicated Christ and said, this is my delight 
This is my joy. This is what I approve of. And he rescued him from the prison of death in the resurrection. And the good news of the gospel is that by faith, what's true of Jesus is true of you. His standing, his affirmation, his approval before God is yours. 100%. No matter what you've done, no matter where you've come from, no matter what your last name is, none of that matters. Faith renders all of that null and void and gives you a righteousness that cannot be taken away. It's why the gospel of the good news of the gospel isn't simply that you are forgiven, but you are given something else. You are called son and daughter of God. You are at peace with God. You are so okay. And Paul says this is the most life-changing reality at work within you. This is who you are. In Christ, you are righteous before God, your Father. You share the approval and the acceptance in his eyes that the Son enjoys. The same love that the Father has for the Son, he has for you. That is the truest reality of your life. And yet, it doesn't always feel that way, does it? We don't always feel that what is most true of us is even true at all. The acceptance we have in Christ can feel distant. And so we look for that acceptance and approval and other things. And so how do we come to know the righteousness we have in Christ? Is that just some ethereal theological fact or is that something you can feel? Is that something that can actually give you the sense of okayness and solidness and peace that you long to know? Well, perhaps to paraphrase Paul, I think he'd say, oh yeah, you most definitely can. Because he doesn't want it to be some distant fact, but a concrete reality. And he says how that comes to be. He says, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. The righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. He's saying to know and come to know this righteousness that you have in Jesus is rooted in this process that begins and ends in faith. The whole process of having that revealed to you and coming to know and understand is rooted in faith, where your faith deepens in Christ and it grows in such a way that you understand who you are in him and that reality becomes more real to you. But the fact that this process is by faith means that it also includes doubt and despair and wrestling. Because to move from one mountaintop of faith to the other means you also have to cross the valley that lies between them. And I said at the beginning that I don't want you to fear your moments of doubt and struggle as though there's something wrong with you. Why? Because it means God has come near to you. In order for your faith in him to grow and blossom and to stand on new heights of faith, it also requires that we let go of our trust in ourselves, our ability, and in the approval 
of everyone and everything around us. And that process of faith is hard. It's not easy. And it's okay to admit that. In the valley is where you experience doubt and despair. And those moments are hard because they make us feel untethered. They make us feel lost. They make us feel out of sorts. We don't like them because it makes life feel completely disrupted. And in the end, we feel vulnerable. And so why would God lead us in this way? Why is it that he would grow us in this manner? Why doesn't God just slam confidence and assurance into our hearts from the second we first believe, never to waver? Why can the verse not say, the righteous shall live by certainty? Well, that's a mystery I could never explain. And honestly, even if I could, it wouldn't make any easier those moments of doubt and despair when they come to you. But I do know this. He leads us in this way because it reveals the type of God that he is. Because if you remove doubt and despair from the reality and life of faith, then you essentially have to get rid of most of the scriptures. You have to remove Abraham, Jacob, Moses, the entire Pentateuch, Job, David, all of the Psalms, Jeremiah, Ecclesiastes, all the minor prophets, all 12 disciples, and the Apostle Paul. We see all of them struggle in some form or fashion and wrestle with the way that God operates, with his purposes, and with his promises. God spoke directly to them, and they still struggled. Faith is a struggle, and the struggle is real. But you are not alone in the struggle, because they weren't alone in the struggle. It was through them and their struggle that God gave us his word. It was how he revealed himself to us. It was through their doubt and despair that God moved his story forward. It was the means by which, through all of their crises of faith, he revealed himself to be faithful over and over again, and that his promises are worth trusting because his promises are true. How else would we even know and have the words even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because you are with me. What we have is a story where God meets his people in their vulnerability. But what does he meet them with? He meets them with his own vulnerability. Think about that. It's so lost on us sometimes that an all-powerful, holy incomprehensible God would move towards us in our vulnerability and allow us to wrestle with him. A God that, that he would allow us to express our doubts and our vexation. That he would allow himself to be misunderstood or blamed or questioned. He would allow his name and his goodness to be put on trial and to patiently listen to the questions of where are you what are you doing? Are you there? And yet still, constantly, repeatedly, and willingly, he condescends to hear the cries and despair of those who are tired of their trust in him when nothing makes sense. He continues to move towards them and invite them to draw near. 
Time and time again, we see a God that makes himself vulnerable to meet vulnerable people. And that's a big deal. All sorts of religions in this world present a God that claim to have the same power as our God. All sorts of gods claim to have power to create, power over creation, power to save, power over death, but none of them can claim to have the vulnerability of our God. None. And the fullest expression of God's willingness to make himself vulnerable for his vulnerable people is found ultimately in the cross where God the Son allowed himself to be ridiculed, mocked, falsely accused, falsely tried, beaten, scorned, rejected, crucified, and buried. When he could have obliterated the entire cosmos with a single word, he chose not to say a word at all. He opened not his mouth. Why? God chose to make him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. This is the God that comes to you in the vulnerability of doubt and despair and why you do not have to fear it. Because he's not one that comes to crush you. He comes to comfort you. And you can trust that whatever he's allowed to bring you to that place, it's because he has come near so that you might know the peace that you have with him. And even though that process is hard, we are surrounded by a cloud of witnesses that testify that there is a richness and depth of faith that lies on the other side of that valley of doubt and despair that reminds us that we are not alone in that struggle, but we have a God whose name is God with us. And we see it with Habakkuk. We see it with him who began his book with his vexation his frustration, his questions, his wrestling. But he ends it with an expression of faith and hope that he has come to know who God is and who he is to God. Because no longer is he looking around at all of the other things around him for assurance. He has come to know the righteousness that comes from God and the faith that has made it real to him. Listen to what he says. Though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He enables me to tread on the heights. That's Habakkuk's journey of faith. And he still never knew that thing that God was doing. But you do. You know this God who makes himself vulnerable to meet you in your vulnerability so that you might stand before the Father as approved and affirmed in Jesus Christ as a true son and a true daughter. And that's righteousness you can't buy. It's righteousness you can't earn, and it's righteousness that you can't lose, and it's righteousness that is absolutely yours by faith. Let's pray.